polite society has banished Carl, Amy, and Todd to live on Leper Island. While exploring the island, they found another outcast, one who was marooned a long time ago, Phil Johnson. Phil chats with the gang about starting fires with Frank Turk and Dan Phillips. Charles Spurgeon's famous preaching, the cult of celebrity pastors, and proper forms of worship. This is Mortification of Spin with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird, a weekly podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Keep listening after the podcast for a free MP3 download. Well, today we're broadcasting from somewhere slightly unusual. Followers of Reformation 21 and the podcast will know that we are essentially banned from polite society. And we've been recently transported to Leper Island, uh, far from the band of bloggers, far from the people who actually influence in a positive way the evangelical world and are leaving a, a delightful legacy behind them. Uh, and while on Leper Island, we have noticed that there are a number of other inhabitants as well. Uh, Frank and Dan from, from Team Pyro, and perhaps most important of all, Phil Johnson, the, the founder of the Pyromaniacs blog. So it's a great delight today to have uh, Phil with us. Uh, the usual team are all here, and we want to talk to Phil of, about uh, uh, a few topics of importance. But first of all, uh, Phil, pyromaniacs, isn't that a, a rather unfriendly? It's Perhaps so even, aggressive. Yeah, it's, it's so it's, aggressive. I, I feel hurt every time, I, every time I see it on the banner head. Can you explain yourself? No, it's hard to explain myself, but I'll give you a try. I... Uh, Actually, when I decided to blog, it was it was mainly so that I could poke my finger in the eye of uh, these emergent guys who were all over the blogosphere at the time, and uh, and I wanted a graphic header for my blog that was both colorful and simple, and it had to be sort of fit on that lateral plane that you have a blog header with, and and uh, and I saw a match, and I thought that's the perfect color combination and 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 the right size. I'm going to make this match into the header. And then it occurred to me, there's that verse in Scripture that says, Is not thy word like a fire? And uh, so I was looking for a name that would sort of correspond to that. So that was the idea. It wasn't that I was, I was there to flame everybody, although, you know, in the end we flamed a few people. <laughs> so it was an artistic decision then. <laughs> right, it, right. It really was. Honestly, that's it's the like truth. That. It was an artistic decision to begin with, and then Pyromaniac. And, and, of course, I knew that in and of itself would be provocative, and that didn't bother me too much, so... That's how it got. Well, it's, it's, it's been interesting because in our journey here at Mortification of Spin, we've, well, let's just say we know what it's like to be uninvited or ignored by those very same people that ignore you. That's right. They don't affirm me on my journey. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're, we're glad to be a part of your tribe and, and your journey. That was so. a very authentic moment there. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you for your authenticity. And Frank and Dan, well, I mean, where did you find them? Lying in a gutter somewhere <laughs> off America's Most Wanted? Uh, I mean, they are particularly reprehensible they specimens of mean. the human they race. Are, they are. Uh, I, I, I admit that. And you know what I did was, I, uh, I, for the first six months or so, I wrote the blog by myself. And I blogged almost every day. And wow. while it was new and I had a whole lot of opinions that I wanted to get out there, it was kind of fun. But after six months, I was running out of opinions and time, and, and I needed and somebody friends. to... Yeah, that's true. And in fact, very real, friends, losing friends. 
And so I looked around the blogosphere and said, who can really write, who's very clever, that I agree with a lot, who, who's even more contemptible than me? So that <laughs> some of this ire that's coming my way will come to them. And, and I chose Dan and Frank. It turned out to be a great choice. Yep. Yep. Well, word is in the Twitter sphere that you guys should be like the wonder triplets now and, yeah. and start <laughs> exactly. claiming your superpowers. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. The, the three of us had never met face-to-face until, I think, two or three years into the wow. blog. Wow. wow. And we decided yeah. uh, one year, all of us, to go to my hometown, Tulsa, and go to a, uh, a, a sort of, a, I think it was a group of, the, it was the Founders Group from the Southern Baptist oh, Convention, okay. Calvinistic Baptist. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's where we met for the first time, the three of us. And, uh, of course, we our, our, our hearts were already knit together. and uh, Strangely warmed. That's right. <laughs> we, uh, Had we, an Asbury moment. Yeah. Well, in fact, there's a church in Tulsa, one of these uh, r- rowdy churches yeah. with... Uh, uh, well, it's called the Guts Church. Okay, that's the name of the church. I'm I not making this up. I know about that's that like church. That's like worse than the Scum of the Earth Church. Yeah. It is. The Guts yeah. Church. In fact, this church got in trouble a few years ago because they they were doing some mixed martial arts or a boxing match or something like that. Sounds like Amy's kind of church. <laughs> yeah, it's right up your alley, Amy. And and uh, uh, one of the contestants died in the boxing match, and uh-huh. the church got sued for it and whatever. Anyway, we went there on a Wednesday night and blogged about it. And, um, yeah, that got us in a little bit of trouble, too. <laughs> you went to the church? Yeah. We attended the Wednesday evening, and they had a dance-off. They had a big dance-off. They con- had a dance-off. That was, yeah, when we walked in, they were doing the dance contest. How is Frank in the dance contest? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to visualize this. Frank's got some moves. <laughs> I, it doesn't. Frank? Has he got jazz hands? says he has some moves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're one of the one or two people out there that has not visited uh, Pyromaniacs, first of all, Phil is no longer he has he has retired from blogging. That's t- correct. But um, it, it's one of the best written blogs out there. It's fun to read, but it's also substantive, and they have a uh, a, a style that is uh, very close to, uh, to to the hearts of of, of the uh, mortification of spin. And I have to uh, add that when Todd gave his defense of uh, women not in the military uh, <laughs> a few months ago, Frank emailed me to say that I think he counted five category mistakes in one <laughs> sentence, which was quite achievement. <laughs> that's why. That's why. Um, I will never actually debate Frank Turk because I have no doubt he would he would run circles around me uh, rhetorically. But um, somewhere in my heart, I've got to believe he agrees with me about that. But that's another issue. I do agree with you about that, by the way. I, we won't get right, into that. We're right-thinking individuals. I just yes. wanted to put that on the record. I agree with we you on that. We are in the theonomist I would not. Island. I never had a daughter, but I have a granddaughter, and I do not want her you Absolutely know, not. You know, in a yeah. fight. Yeah, so. and, but you know, Carl's a Brit. Uh, they're used to having women uh, fight for him. So you know, Boadicea, great woman, great woman, <laughs> saved us from the Romans. Yep, so, yep. I'm, I think I'm one sixty fourth Icani. Actually, that's why I have such sympathy with. Her. Well, one of the things that Phil that you've done that has been terrific, I think, um, is the Spurgeon Archive. Mm. And um, if you all are not familiar with the Spurgeon Archive, um, just Google it and go there. Uh, Phil, how did it happen? Well, I was a latecomer to Spurgeon, actually. When I first became a Christian, I was 17 years old uh, and lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the heart of the yep. charismatic movement. And uh, 
so I, I didn't know where to go. I, I had come to the Lord in my room reading the scriptures and, and got under conviction for my sin, and I was looking for a church that preached the gospel. I'd grown up in a liberal Methodist church, and and uh, and I knew this was not what I wanted. So I was looking for somebody who believed the gospel and and preached the scripture as if it's true, and uh, and clearly believed that it's true. And I, I ended up in a fundamentalist Baptist church, and uh, I was only there for two or three months because then I went off to college. But while I was there, I listened to this preacher, and he would quote Spurgeon almost every week. So I heard Spurgeon's name. I knew he was supposed to be a great Baptist preacher. And as a 17-year-old, I ordered uh, some collections of Spurgeon sermons and and was g- glad when they came in the mail, opened it up with great eagerness, and immediately lost my enthusiasm for Spurgeon because it was wall-to-wall text with no paragraph breaks, small type, <laughs> Victorian language, and I just couldn't, I, I couldn't see what anybody saw in this. And so I set Spurgeon aside and literally did not read him for 20 years, 20 years. And um, it was years later, I was already, had been a Christian then for 20 years, and I was working with John MacArthur editing his books, and uh, he began to work on a book called Ashamed of the Gospel, which is a critique of pragmatism in the church, and what what I do is edit sermon transcripts and and help him, you know, draft the the concepts for the book and all. And he'll give me scraps of paper and say, work this into the material and and whatever. He gave me this excerpt from a Spurgeon sermon, and said, this says exactly what I want to say to start the book with. Just make this the sort of opening quote, you know, put it in there. And I read it, and it was really good, but it wasn't documented. So I had to go looking for where Spurgeon said this. And I found out it was from a message he gave during the downgrade controversy. And I got a collection of all of the downgrade material, all of his polemical writings and and several sermons that he preached during the downgrade controversy. And I I just devoured it. And as I read this collection, it was about a 140-page book, I would guess, Everything Spurgeon said was what John MacArthur was saying in this book. And so I, I marked this book up. I literally couldn't put it down, stayed awake until 2 a.m. finishing it, highlighting it. And when I was finished, I gave it back to, I gave it to John MacArthur and said, that thing you gave me from Spurgeon may put me on to this. You ought to read this because it's the same thing you're saying in your book. And so he read it and marked it up even more than I had and gave it back to me and said, you should you should work some of these quotes into every chapter. And so that's what we did. And if you read that book, Ashamed of the Gospel, you'll see it's it's woven together with an accounting of the downgrade controversy and Spurgeon's participation in it. That started me reading Spurgeon. That was in 1991. And in 1995, I, uh, I came down with bronchitis, and it developed a persistent cough that kept me out of work for about three months. Turned out that the medicine the doctor was giving me was perpetuating the cough. So for the first time in my entire career, I got caught up on all of my desk work, uh, had nothing else to do, and 1995 was before most people ever even heard of the World Wide Web or the Internet. I'd heard of the Internet, so I bought access and started creeping around on the internet. Really, the World Wide Web was very new at the time. They used to have what were called gopher servers with, with uh, because it came from, I think, the University of Minnesota. Are they the ones that are the gophers or Wisconsin? I don't know, whatever. Well, anyway, it northern, yeah. so it was 
these gopher servers had documents on the internet and i found on the entire internet at the time in in early 1995 there was a a, a great total of eight spurgeon sermons wow. on the internet it was all of the spurgeon on the internet and it was it was form, formatted so you could see it in a web browser but it was small type no paragraph breaks a gray background and wall-to-wall text the very thing i hated about the original Spur- spurgeon material i read and so having a background in publishing, I thought, I can format that so it's more readable. And so I put margins and gave it bigger typeface and tried to make it look attractive and put those eight sermons back on the web and put a link to those sermons in a theological discussion forum that I participated in at the time. And word got out that I was, that I had done this. And people started sending me transcripts of more and more sermons. And by the end of that year, we had, I think, 250 or more Spurgeon Sermons Online, it became the Spurgeon Archive. I named myself Curator mm-hmm. as kind of a joke, right. but mm. people took it seriously yeah. and it developed from there. On, yeah. on Spurgeon's preaching, Phil, I mean, one of the questions I have is uh, I, I appreciate he was a great preacher. I mean, the, the stories of his preaching are, are stunning. Uh, there often doesn't seem to be much connection between the text he's chosen to preach on and what yes, he actually right. says in the sermon. So my question is, what can I learn from Spurgeon? Obviously, I'm not going to go to him as a model of how to exegete Scripture and bring it to bear on the congregation on a Sunday. Th- that's but right. clearly, he's a valuable person to read. What, what sort of things should I be looking for? Yeah, and there are a couple of aspects of his preaching that really are negative examples, one being the fact that he often used the text out of context as a jumping-off point. Mm. One of my favorites is a sermon he did on um, divine providence from Ezekiel, where the you have the wheel within yeah, the wheel, and mm. he started with the wheel within the wheel, and I don't even know how he got to divine <laughs> providence from that, but it was something like, what goes around comes around, and that, you know... It was, you look at the wheel, and you just see the circle, and not all the spokes. I've heard yeah, Todd, pre- Todd, Todd you preach ser- sermons like that. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, I've just been outed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he was a topical preacher who used often used the text as a jumping-off point. He did do exposition, but it was outside the sermon. There was a, another portion of the Sunday service where he would read Scripture and comment on it. Huh. And so it wasn't the sort of exposition that we teach you know, preachers today, the expository preaching should be like, but but his sermons were so full of biblical and doctrinal content that there's enough soundness in there that even though you don't like the form of it, the right. content mm-hmm. is well worth reading. So it's kind of similar to Luther. There's a lot of Christ, even though yeah. one might question the, the exegetical principles being used. Right. The other negative example uh, you get from Spurgeon is the way he prepared his sermons. He didn't even usually decide what he was going to preach on on Sunday morning until after dinner Sunday night. <laughs> and his wife described it. He would he would excuse all of the guests in their home after dinner on su- Saturday he would he would uh, then go into the study and pray about what text he should use, and in some <laughs> mystical way it would occur to him, that's the text, and he would write a little outline on a scrap piece of paper and take that the next morning into the pulpit and preach almost entirely extemporaneous yeah, wow. material. And that, and that goes, I mean, he, he was so remarkably gifted, his yeah, mind, he, and, and he with the He had a language. near photographic yeah, memory. That, that he could do things that the normal human being... He must have had an amazing voice, too. Yeah. Uh, he... Um, they never thought to record him, and, yeah. and that irritates me, yeah. you know, because they had the technology. We have there was uh, something floating around on the web recently. His son. Yeah, that's his son. Yeah. That's right. Oh, that's There's his a son. recording yeah. of his son, and, and, and people they say, say he sounded, they sounded like alike, but yeah, I don't believe right. it yeah. Yeah. because yeah. Spurgeon preached in the Crystal Palace, which was like a big greenhouse 
to, to a crowd of 20,000 people on one occasion. And without amplification, they had a soundboard over him to reflect the sound. And people said on the periphery of the crowd, you could hear every word with absolute clarity. Now, that must have been a monster voice. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't even imagine it. But Wow. One yeah. thing that I think of with, with Spurgeon is this whole um, celebrity pastor cult that we have now. And um, he would definitely be considered a celebrity pastor even today. He's sure. still so well known. And yet when you talk about things like the downgrade controversy, he, he truly stepped up as a leader in the Baptist church to um, call out error and names right. and really fight for, for truth and, and purity of truth and purity mm-hmm. in worship. Yeah, that's right. His popularity, which was huge almost from the beginning because mm-hmm. people loved to hear him, but it really peaked at, at one point, and by, by around 1888, his, uh, he, 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 he'd become almost unpopular. There was a younger preacher who was also popular, Joseph Parker, who uh, sort of saw him as a rival, and Parker uh, had a di- totally different personality. He played off that celebrity status. He wanted to be a kind mm-hmm. of celebrity, and and all that. Spurgeon really had no care for that. And in fact, one of the most difficult experiences in his life was when there was a disaster while he was preaching at the music garden, the music, whatever, at Surrey Gardens. Uh, Somebody um, shouted fire. I think it was a coordinated effort to start a panic. Several voices from around shouted fire at the same time, and there was a stampede. And some people died. And uh, that that left a scar on Spurgeon's heart yeah. that kept him struggling with depression for the rest of his life, and and part of it I think was that his his contempt for the idea of celebrity and popularity, and he wanted to make sure I think that he didn't succumb to that, even though wherever he preached, he just drew massive crowds. And I think that's one of the reasons why he writes he wrote so well on things like emotional and mental anguish yeah because he experienced it his I, I tell people his chapter in 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 his lectures uh, to his students uh, the minister's fainting fits mm-hmm. is is worth the price of the book because yeah. he lets you see the, the, the and, and so much of it had to do with that event that you just described yeah and he felt that all his life yeah. and yet it's interesting isn't it you read the biographies they don't often say much about his struggles with depression yeah. because it wasn't it just wasn't done in those Victorian right. times to talk about personal issues like yeah. that. Yeah, it's written about some in his autobiography, though, isn't it? He's yes, in the two volume work, he's he's got some where he'll refers to it, but but o- only only in passing and yeah. only obliquely. He yeah. didn't he wouldn't write a chapter mm-hmm. on the right, struggle yeah. with depression. Yeah. He writes more about the issue in in his yeah. lectures, but um, I, so so you mentioned the downgrade, and and I think one of the things we see in our own time is there's been, in many ways, an evangelicalism, a downgrade, not only in our doctrine, but in our worship, in our ecclesiology. Um, You know, you're here in Philadelphia at an event speaking into some issues about worship and the church and its purity. Um, What what do you see on the landscape? And this is a huge question, so you answer it any way you like. In the area of the church's worship— um, and its purity, uh, contrasted with the sort of trendiness we see in contemporary evangelicalism. Yeah, there's a real failure uh, to understand what worship is supposed to be in terms of uh, sobriety and reverence. And, and I'm not talking about, um, 
you know, that, that our worship should be devoid of joy mm-hmm. or anything like that. It obviously should be joyful and heartfelt and all of that. But, but w- people today think in terms of let's make it as casual as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, um, you know, let's, let's, let's have as much fun as possible. Yeah. And so worship is being done for the benefit of the, the audience mm-hmm. are, are thinking that the people are the audience, and in, in fact, specifically, the unchurched right. are now the audience for which evangelicals want to tailor their worship, forgetting that we're worshiping God. And yeah. One of the things I've talked about this week in, in these meetings is the story of Uzzah, who was you know, struck dead because mm-hmm. he reached out to steady the Ark right. of God, and he, in doing so, he touched the Ark, which he wasn't supposed to do, mm-hmm. and and the penalty for that was instant death. Yeah. Uh, God is more gracious than that with us, or yeah. a lot of us would be dead. And, and that example, one of the things you see is that there had been God had been gracious. There had been a steady disrespect for the ark until eventually it culminated with Uzzah's reaching out. And, 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 I, and, and I think a lesson there for us is that God's been gracious to his church, but you wonder how much longer that patience lasts. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was that's listening to you speak this morning, and that was really good. And I was taking notes, and you were talking about this playful approach that we have to worship now. And as you were talking about how we do want to have joy, but it has to be based in true worship. And I don't remember the words that you said, but I wrote down that true joy is not casual. That's like what I took away from yeah. what you were saying, and that was really meaningful to me. Yeah, that, yeah. David true danced joy. with all his might, it says. This yeah. is not some sort of flippant... Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of casual, you know, whatever. He's 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 doing this. This is something he's doing with all his might, meaning he, he's doing it, you know, with all his heart as mm-hmm. well. And at the appropriate time you yeah. were talking about as well, yeah. because first it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the books of Spurgeon that I've most appreciated is uh, The Pastor in Prayer, yes. which mm-hmm. connects to the worship question. Uh, were those prayers in that book extemporaneous? Because they well, are masterpieces. Interesting that you would ask that. I, I think I think to a degree, yes. But not that he went there without thinking about what he right. was going to say. And in fact, I mentioned that when I was 17, I read this, uh, the first sermon I read from Spurgeon. It was interestingly, it was, a spur, it was a sermon on prayer from the book of Job. The title was Order and Argument in Prayer. And he's taking a verse from Job where Job is saying he's going to go and and basically lay out his case before God. And he says, I'm, I'm going to order my case before him. I, I forget exactly the King James language, but that's the idea. He's going to order his case and argue in his defense before God. And Spurgeon is saying that's how we should approach prayer. Mm. We, should, we should plan what we're going to say. We should think about it and have an order to our prayer and, and a logical flow to it and all. And I, and I know that's how he approached it. So, yeah, I'm sure he thought it out. He, he was able to keep things like mm. that in his mind. Yeah. I, I would have to write out the words to remember what I planned. My short-term memory is that bad. I mean, one of the things I think is a, re- a real premium at the moment is good pulpit prayer. Mm. Don't teach it in seminary. It's almost as if there's a, a pious fear about teaching people to pray because it will somehow become inauthentic. Yeah, That's one of your favorite words, Phil. It is. But it will be somehow inauthentic to teach people to pray. And yet it seems to me that a good pulpit prayer is designed to inform and edify and lead people into the presence of God. Yeah. One of the young guys at my church was leading worship uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Pete Lilback, the president of Westminster, was in the congregation. I had lunch with Pete on the Tuesday after this, and Pete said to me, that guy who led in prayer on Sunday, 
he said, he edified me mm. and he wove scripture in in a memorable way that I came away thinking I'd met with God wow. yeah, in that young man's prayer. And um, Yeah, there's an interesting sentence in, uh, in John 11 where Jesus is praying just before he raises Lazarus from the dead where he says, Father, thank you for hearing me. And he says, I know that you always hear me, but mm. for the sake of these mm. people standing right. around, I said it. Yeah. That tells me there is a legitimate didactic purpose yeah. in a public prayer. Yeah. Jesus himself prayed for the benefit of people who were yeah. hearing it. We ought to approach it like that as pastors as yeah. well. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like we could just keep talking on and on yeah. with you, Phil, but we've got to wrap things up now. And um, I want to thank everybody for listening. And uh, the Alliance would like to give away a free message entitled Spurgeon the Warrior by Phil Johnson. Free download if you visit our website at www.mortificationofspin.org. And it comes from his series on Charles Spurgeon called A Puritan Untimely Born. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. This has been Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Remember to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can download a free MP3 of a sermon by Phil Johnson entitled, Spurgeon, the Warrior. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include Reformation21.org, the Bible Study Hour, and events held from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. Please join the gang again next week. Don't forget to download your free MP3 message. That's right. They don't affirm me on my journey. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're we're glad to be a part of your tribe and and your journey. That was so. a very authentic moment there. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for your authenticity. <laughs>